Welcome, everybody. Welcome to uh, the London School of Economics. I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the LSE, and it is my privilege to introduce this evening's speaker. But before I do so, I would like to make a couple of announcements. <clears throat> so please turn off your mobile phone or put it on silence. Uh, I always ask that, but it still sometimes leads to you know, embarrassing situations. Uh, for those of you who are into Twitter, the hashtag oh. for this evening is LSE Matsukato. Uh, the event is being broadcast live, and if the technology doesn't let us down, it should be made available on the LSE events webpage. The idea is Professor Matsukato will give an introduction, and then after that, there will be the uh, possibility for you to ask questions. And then after the event, uh, there is the possibility to buy the book outside and get it signed. And the idea is, is that we'll stay on the stage, and then you go outside, and then you line up if you want to get it uh, signed. Okay, so those were the, you know, the bureaucratic announcements. So now my, uh, my real job is to introduce our guests. So Professor Matsukato uh, holds a chair, actually with our competitor, University College London, <laughs> um, in the economics of innovation and public value. She's been at the LSE before, uh, and I think with good reason. Uh, she has won several prestigious awards, and actually I'm not going to you know, mention all of them, but the most recent one was the Leonchev Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought, and that was for path-breaking research on the positive role of governments in fostering innovation. Her books have been uh, well-received, and a couple of years ago one was even on the Financial Times Books of the Year list, and unlike me, she doesn't just you know, do research and write books. She actually also advises governments. And again, there's a whole list, but those include organizations like the UN and the OECD and also national governments. So please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you very much. So do not worry. I'm not getting on my phone if I look at the phone, but my timer's on it, so I don't uh, speak too much. And thanks, Bautid. Um, so I'm going to keep this relatively informal. Um, I want to be able to engage as much with the questions as possible because I think this whole issue of how do we bring value back to the way we actually talk about the economy is one that is quite exciting, especially in a moment where there's this whole rethinking economics movement uh, across the world, but which sometimes, and this is, so, sorry if this sounds harsh at the wrong time, already beginning with some harsh words, um, it has the risk of becoming sometimes a critique of how abstract and too mathematical economics is without necessarily uh, really kind of debunking some of the assumptions. And I often say uh, to students who are worried about the um, amount of math in economics to also question the type of math, to start looking at you know, exactly which equations are being used and to ask why are they basically still all coming from Newtonian physics, and why don't we actually even open up the toolbox, even within the mathematical toolbox, to areas like uh, biology and other types of sciences, and not be so restricted even in the type of math. Um, and I should say something quite, I don't want to say funny, but um, interesting, which is that as I was writing the book, way before I even got to halfway through the book, I received a possible cover from Penguin. And I looked at it and I thought, this does not look like a serious cover. And I had in mind, you know, Piketty's wonderfully serious kind of, you know, beautifully elegant cover. And I said, I want a better one. 
because this one to me looked kind of like the coyote and the roadrunner, right? With that, with that saw. And I was like, no, 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 something more serious. So they listened. And I had these two wonderfully serious, even more than Piketty, I would say, right? So this is the English edition out this week, the US edition out September 11th. Don't ask me why um, that very traumatic date in the US. But then, as I wrote the book and actually finished it, I regretted it. Because in fact, if you think back at what happens to that roadrunner and the coyote, they get to this point here where they basically have sawed off their uh, lifeblood. And in fact, that's what I'm going to be talking about, where, you know, which is why have we gotten to this point where we are no longer actually understanding what underpins growth, what underpins value, and in the process, kind of sawing away at it. Um, but I won't say that's all folks. And by the way, all of you are so young, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, right? The Roadrunner <laughs> Coyote, so sorry. This was a great cartoon. Um, so let me just begin with um, two reasons why I wrote the book. Um, which for me is important because I'm sure this happens to many people who write books. They say, well, why did I write this in the first place? Because, of course, one tends to go off on quite a few tangents. The first is that I think very little, unfortunately, has happened since the financial crisis where um, you will recall that some of the best critiques of what led to it which was basically finance lending to other parts of finance, and in the process, the rate of growth of financial intermediation, so the whole financial sector, seen as, if you want, even just the whole shadow banking system, outpaced the growth of the real economy, um, and finance wasn't actually playing its role. Um, what people like Minsky and Keynes had actually predicted, also Marx. And so there was attempts to restrain this, to really rethink how did we let this happen? Should we have, for example, a financial transaction tax, which actually discourages fast trading within finance and encourages long-term trading, uh, this need for long-termism? Um, but unfortunately, um, I would, you know, we don't have the financial transaction tax. We still have many of the large investment banks which uh, in fact, their behavior led to the financial crisis, making record-level profits. And this notion that you know part of the economy was taking and making a huge amount of money from that, whereas workers and other parts of productive uh, members of society were not doing as well, actually dates back to you know. Basically, you can go back 200 years, and I'll be uh, giving you quite a few quotes. But this one here I thought was quite interesting just before, or actually just after the big crash um, of 1929, where big Bill Haywood, the founder of the U.S. First Industrial Union, kind of made these critiques as well, the same kind of tr critiques that we heard after the financial crisis. So these gold barons are making all this money, and yet they don't mill the gold, they don't mine the gold. What's happening, right? And then, too, there was, you know, questioning, why has so little changed? Why do we go from one crisis to another? So the first kind of um, motivation was really to say perhaps some of the critiques, some of the critiques of who the makers, who the takers were, was just too weak. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, the second is, and sorry for this completely self-promotional slide, but The Entrepreneurial State, my previous book, which I also launched in this room, um, on the one hand, it had you know great... I don't want to say success, but there was a real thirst for that message. It was a message about the role of the state being important, but also undervalued, something I'll come back to. Um, you know, everything in our smartphones that actually make these phones smart and not stupid was actually funded by different types of public institutions around the world, including CERN's funding of the World Wide Web. 
And yet, even though this became a sort of a passport through which to talk about innovation-led growth, investment-led growth with politicians worldwide, I was kind of taken aback by the fact that then they kept doing these kind of silly policies like the patent box, right? Patents are monopolies that businesses get for 20 years. You get monopoly profits for 20 whole years. And the patent box tax policy, which is rippling through the world like a oil uh, uh, stain, um, basically rewards by reducing tax to monopoly profits um, that monopoly. So you don't need to do that. If you already have a 20-year monopoly, you don't need a tax reduction on that level of monopoly profits. You need some other things um, to incentivize, for example, the investments that lead to the monopoly. But when I spoke to policymakers and said, hold on, you can't, on the one hand, actually you know, really believe the kind of things I talked about in the entrepreneurial state and then go introduce these kinds of problematic policies. And the answers I got often had to do with particular types of lobbying that they had uh, you know, believed in that had to do with value creation and wealth creation. So this particular policy was actually lobbied by a particular pharmaceutical company through the idea that we need this kind of tax reduction in order to stimulate our innovation. And innovation, of course, is central to the wealth creation process. And we as wealth creators are extremely important uh, to be listened to. So this concept of wealth creation and value creation, which is much more general than the concept of, if you want, just innovation, which was what I was focusing on in the entrepreneurial state, just you know, kept being just so strong. And then also related to this, I was very taken aback, after the Labour Party lost the election, I wasn't so much taken aback by the election, but by what was said after the election, which was Labour Party members themselves, in fact, quite senior figures, um, including Tony Blair, saying that the reason we lost the election is we did not embrace the wealth creators. And I thought, how could a party that calls itself the Labour Party assume that wealth creation is just in business. Of course, businesses create wealth. Of course, entrepreneurs create wealth. But this word, the wealth creators, to mean just what happens in private sector activity was extremely problematic. And in fact, I would argue that the reason that center-left parties have lost and continue to be losing elections to um, around the world and why populism, if you want, is being nurtured is also this lack of discourse and narrative that excites people about where, where wealth creation comes from. And even progressive uh, uh, policymakers use this word, perhaps unknowingly. And so the idea behind the book was let's really unpick some of these ideas about where wealth creation comes from. Um, it was quite extraordinary. I thought that after the crisis, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, was even able to use this word and this sentence of, you know, the people of Goldman Sachs are amongst the most productive in the world. They are the greatest wealth creators. This is after the crisis, after they, in fact, had even been fined for some very problematic practices, which we know helped uh, lead to the crisis, as well as this concept of, you know, the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs very much in the news over the past weeks over the whole issue of data privacy is still, even if we critique issues around data privacy, they're still seen as very uh, able and dynamic wealth creators. In fact, Google's motto, I think, uh, is quite emblematic of that. We don't do evil. What do we do? Good. Um, as well as ideas on how to ring fence financial services after Brexit, 
uh, independent of the political party, this notion that we must, in fact, protect and ring fence this particular sector because of how important it is for value creation. Um, and some, a topic I'll come back to at the end, the ability of pharmaceutical companies um, to charge extremely high prices for drugs to the point that people often die, not because they're sick, but because they cannot afford those drugs, using a particular idea of value, so value-based pricing, you know, which, again, just makes people shut up. Oh, that must be serious. This is about value. Value-based pricing must be right. Um, and, of course, then the opposite, this you know, idea that as important as uh, the state is uh, for doing some things, in fact, bureaucrats are not, of course, what, uh, value creators. Um, I actually began the entrepreneurial state with a great quote by Cameron who said, uh, uh, civil servants are the enemies of enterprise. And even though that was an extreme sort of statement, this idea that, in fact, the state is important for redistributing value, for... Um, for incentivizing value creators, for de-risking, enabling, facilitating value creators, but the state itself, through its different activities, doesn't actually create value, right? So I wanted to unpick this, and this is what the book's about. And I begin it with uh, this wonderful quote by a very famous, smart guy, Plato, who warned us, warned us about this, even though he was saying this in a more positive light, but that storytelling allows people to rule, right? So the question is, all these, again, coming back to the, the sounds in the streets, the idea that we have this problem of the 1% and the 99%, and what might we do to create a more inclusive society? Could it be that, in fact, it's the stories that we're telling, the narratives about value, the words, literally the vocabulary, and the theories underpinning it in economics that, in fact, allows uh, some to rule? Um, and others not to, and how can we unpick this? And so what I wanted to do in the book was, again, to go to the center of that um, and, 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 and really to ask, you know, the accusation that, in fact, some actors in, in the economy are getting rich by extracting value, coming back to that first uh, point I was making, while others are creating it, Bill, big Bill Haywood's uh, point with the gold miners, but not benefiting from it, actually requires a theory or theories or a debate about those theories about where value comes from. But we no longer talk about that. We no longer are actually debating theories of value. We have economics departments, many of them, including perhaps LSE, where we don't even use the word value. It's just called Econ 101. Um, so what is value? What is being extracted? What social, economic, and organizational conditions were needed for value to be produced? And I'm convinced that until we answer these questions, it's not enough to simply then talk about taxing wealth, as important as different types of taxation are. Um, we must first rethink our ideas of where that wealth actually comes from. And in fact, different types of wealth taxation will be more resilient over time, so less susceptible that a politician comes about and reverses perhaps a tax policy that was fought for if it's in fact underpinned by a notion of where wealth comes from. And this is key, because notions that some kinds of people, companies, and sectors are more valuable than others has in fact, and continues to, steer growth policies and metrics used for capturing growth to evaluate it for the last two or three centuries. So what I do in the book is I look at how such notions of productive versus unproductive activities, value creation versus value extraction, value redistribution, and perhaps even value, yeah, destruction, have evolved with different notions of 
value theory and different ideas how wealth is created and how capitalism works. And this is important because then in turn, this is linked to different ideas about distribution. Who deserves what? Do you deserve what you have because you, in fact, are a very productive, uh, above average productive member of society? Um, and so I begin the book with an exposition of this wonderful term, uh, the production boundary, which is, in fact, found throughout the history of economic thought where the mercantilists, the physiocrats, the classical economists, so uh, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and Karl Marx, put different people inside this fence and others outside. And when they were outside, that wasn't necessarily that they were bad. They might have just been seen important as circulating existing value that was created inside. So most of you who've taken, I think I, I even saw some, just I can tell from the uniforms, some A-level students. So the A-level students here learning about economics, hopefully you've had some basic training in the history of economic thought. And if so, you will know that the mercantilists put at the center inside that productive boundary uh, trade in exchange. This was an era in the 1600s in which uh, uh, wars were being fought in this idea that you had to raise tax revenue, but also that you needed the right terms of trade was very important. The physiocrats during the 1700s when we had mainly agricultural societies, and that's in fact how uh, most production was being done, put farming inside. The classicals who, again, Smith, Ricardo, and, and Marx, uh, who were living through the big industrial revolution from the 1700s to the end of the 1800s, put labor and changes in the division of labor and how technological change was affecting labor and wages and employment at the center. And then I'll review, uh, I'm going to go th through this very quickly, don't worry, uh, neoclassical theory, which introduced something very different, was, which was kind of the subjective notion that actually what also really mattered were supply and demand curves, but very specifically the preferences, for example, that workers had for leisure versus work was very important for understanding wages. It wasn't some objective conditions relating to you know, who owned the means of production, for example, or objective conditions around technological change, but preferences became extremely important as well as uh, different uh, variables that I'll talk about. So let me just quickly go through this. In fact, I'm tempted not to, because I probably said enough just about this. But what's interesting, if you look at the histories, in fact, there was disagreement. So within the mercantilists, you had um, Gregory King and William Petty, who drew up these lists and debated. But actually, over time, you know, the lords, the clergy, the civil servants, and the lawyers for Petty were seen as unproductive, whereas all of a sudden, for King, they were productive. Now, this is, you know, this is interesting, because in fact, there's no steadfast rule. This very much depends on how, um, you know, perhaps that it wasn't necessarily the category of work, but what was being done. In fact, with the physiocrats, there was debates between Canet and Turgot um, about that. Um, and in fact, in the physiocrats, where the value was very much in farming, it was uh, Francois Canet, who also, by the way, drew up one of the first ever Excel sheets to look at production and growth through the Tableau Economique, divided... Um, people basically into three classes, so the productive, 
uh, members of society who basically, again, were farmers, the, uh, those who were uh, sterile, which sounds terrible, but actually they weren't that bad. They were basically those responsible for circulation. And then the really bad ones he called the proprietors. You know, these were literally those who kind of forced value out of the system and weren't actually contributing much. But he drew this wonderful Excel sheet where you could look at the uh, distribution between um, these different classes and the degree to which the uh, farm labor and farm output was then actually reinvested back into production as opposed to squandered away by the proprietor class uh, was central to their understanding of growth. Um, and so this was the production boundary, right? So inside here, the great stuff. Outside, some of the purely circulatory uh, roles as well as those who were siphoning off. And this was seen as a, as a real problem. In Adam Smith, he was one of the first who talked about uh, value as actually being central to how labor was organized, the division of labor. Smith, by the way, one of the great things he did was look at um, the dynamics of learning by doing, and uh, which is basically about dynamic increasing returns to scale. And again, those of you who study economics will know that we often assume in microeconomic theory all sorts of diminishing diminishing returns, but his focus on labor made him really try to understand how factories were organized. And he said that there's one sort of labor which adds to the value of the subject upon which it is bestowed. There's another which has no such effect. The former, as it produces value, may be called productive. The latter is unproductive. Um, and again, so he was putting uh, uh, um, you know, industry at the center. That part of agriculture, which was benefiting from all this new technological change, was also but then uh, tertiary government and household production outside. And it's, it's quite extraordinary that most people in this room, not the students, would have been seen as absolutely unproductive in his view. So all of you uh, sort of uh, unproductive, uh, not sterile, because that again sounds too bad, but you know, priests, I assume there's not many priests in the room, but definitely some lawyers. Raise your hand if you're a lawyer. At least five, I'm sure. Uh, doctors, I'm sure, men of letters, that's what we are, I assume, yeah, we're professors, very unproductive, including players, these would be, I guess, the football, except Arsenal, they're, they're obviously <laughs> very productive, uh, buffoons, musicians, and opera singers, and opera dancers, he went out of his way to focus on these poor opera people, two, two categories, opera singers and opera dancers, I don't know, he must have had, had a very bad experience. Um, and what's interesting in David Ricardo's work is he also focused on the consumption, so the degree to which consumption itself can have a productive and, a, and an unproductive nature. Um, but I do want to get to Marx, because I think Marx was much more granular. You know, people think Marx was just very dogmatic, but actually, if you look at his work, he was much more intricate, and he didn't like these kind of dichotomous categories, you know, you're good, you're bad. He said it actually depends on what role you have. So some that, Mar that uh, Smith might have labeled as unproductive because they simply weren't producing stuff and they were just circulating around, for example, driving the lorry that was bringing things from point A to point B, Marx was much more, um, was much more careful to not do that. For him, it depended exactly what you were doing, where you were driving that lorry. Uh, determine whether you were being productive or unproductive. And he wasn't using the word productive in a normative sense. He was tying it back to where he thought value came from. And for Marx, labor was productive if and only if it produces a surplus value for production capital that is value above and beyond the value of labor power. Labor power, uh, so, so people who were working, required a certain amount of food and costs in order to keep working. And this notion of, of 
the subsistence costs for labor power were very central to his understanding of what produced surplus value so that the production boundaries define not in terms of sectors or occupations but in terms of the way in which profits the difference between how much the capitalists were getting and the cost of labor power was and all the different technological changes affecting labor power how that was produced um, so how profits are generated and you must know that Marx was a big critic of how uh, profits were generated through labor exploitation under capitalism was central to how he then understood this productive, unproductive, but that was in terms of how he understood value creation in the economy. And the reason I say it was more subtle and in some ways interesting for some of the things I'll come back to at the end is this means that you know, it depends what you're doing. And so even if we later go to a more normative stance of value creation, uh, one might argue, for example, and I'll come back to this, that finance, it's not about you know, financiers or takers and industry or makers, but how might we actively reform the way that finance operates um, in order to actually bring it into the production boundary. Okay, but in, when I will argue that, I will be using a more normative understanding of value. Um, and so the key insights from the classicals, who were really the first to have a strong theory of value that also linked it to distribution and to growth, was first that the relationships between value, prices, and income were actually tied to objective conditions of production and those forces changing production, like technological change. The relationships between production and income, so the income being earned by workers through wages, landlords through rents, and capitalists, the profits, were mediated through also not only power issues, so who actually owns the means of production, who has to sell their labor in order to uh, work. Um, and a key focus, but also of the physiocrats, was the reproduction of the system. So if there was too much being siphoned off, right, either from the clergy or the kings, or a particular type of finance that was going to hurt the ability of the system to reproduce itself, right? So in fact, this production boundary, if there was too much work being done in the unproductive part of the economy, like all these opera singers, too much opera singers in the economy, that would then eventually hurt the ability of the capitalist system itse itself to regenerate. Um, and in this um, uh, uh, framework, it was quite interesting that the word rent, don't think of rent as the money you're paying for an apartment, but the rent, for example, in the physiocrats that was being earned by the landlords, rent was seen as uh, uh, basically unearned income. This was the money that was being earned by particular members of society, whether it was landlords or, uh, or different types of financiers, for basically just moving stuff around. Okay? So basically it was a form of unearned income. Um, and just two quick quotes here. Landlords, right, has its origin in robbery quite explicit. Uh, the landlords, like all other men, love to reap where they never sowed. This basically means unearned income. You are making money basically for doing nothing, right? Coming back to Big Bill Haywood's uh, uh, quote in the beginning. And demand a rent even for the natural produce of the earth. David Ricardo, rent is that portion of the produce of the earth which is paid to the landlord for the use of the original and indestructible powers of the soil. So what's quite extraordinary is that this concept of rent which was in the classical seen as purely, basically, unearned income, later became seen as an imperfection towards a competitive price. So a transient state that we could actually use different policies to compete it away. But this is a very original part of classical economic theory, which I think will be useful for some of the discussion later. So in neoclassical economics, which is basically um, uh, the economics that is taught 
in most economics departments around the world, uh, one of the biggest changes, as I already mentioned before, is that we have a complete reversal. It's no longer a theory of value, right, tied to objective cost of production, which determine price through the classical, say, labor theory of value, but it's actually theories of price, which then reveal value, right? And so I already gave the, the uh, example of workers' wages tied to their preferences for leisure versus work, but in general, if you just think of how supply and demand curves and also all the more microeconomic theory behind that, the logic becomes reversed, right? Not from value to price, but from price to value. Um, and this is something that had ended up having a very large uh, impact on, for example, how we account for growth, what actually to include in the production uh, boundary and what to exclude. And I'll be talking about that in a minute. But basically, the boundary is here. And what we have in here are market exchange of commodities at prices expressing subjective value and produced with scarce factors, labor, land, and capital. And outside, is, are not categories. We wouldn't put finance or government, or actually government, yes, government is unproductive. Government, by the way, is very interesting, is unproductive in all the theories, even in Marx. It's not true that you know, the guy who advocated communism was all for a government. Even in Marx, if you read Capital One, Two, and Three, there's no real notion of uh, a government action as creating value. Um, you need Keynes to come in, but even Keynes is quite interesting because, or at least I should say, how Keynes was interpreted by Keynesians um, as best as being needed for counter-cyclical spending, but there isn't really a notion of government as creating value. It can facilitate and leverage up through the multiplier uh, value creation, but it's, it's, it's actually quite extraordinary that there's this absence, basically in the history of economic thought, of government as an active a co-creator of value. Again, something I'll come back to later. Um, and so the idea that, in fact, it's um, that value is in the eyes of the beholder, that anything that actually has a price must be valuable as long as it is legal, right? We're not talking about prostitution in countries where it's illegal or drugs where it's illegal, created a, a very large uh, change in economic thought. And the implications are basically that we no longer had have an idea that you know, wages might be tied to also particular uh, structural conditions within the uh, way that, that production occurs. Rents are no longer about unearned income, but actually just about asymmetries towards a competitive price. I have an a, a f- a interesting quote here by Jevons, who basically is saying that, in fact, capital uh, 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 labor and, and landlords can almost equally exploit each other. They're symmetric. Right? So each laborer must be regarded like each landowner and each capitalist as bringing into the common stock one part of the component elements, bargaining for the best share of the produce which the conditions of the market allow him to claim successfully. There's a symmetry. There's no longer these kind of structural conditions differentiating uh, these different members of society. Um, and, and what's quite interesting is as this theory took hold, some of these debates uh, between uh, economists in the past about well who you know which are the valuable members of uh, the economy who should be inside the production boundary who should be outside kind of withered away um, and what I do in the book then is I ask what happens when you go from uh, a very active debate about value active debate about who should be inside the productive uh, the production boundary but also it being tied to different objective conditions 
division of labor, technological change, to a more subjective notion. What happens to how we calculate GDP? What happens to the way in which the financial sector grows or is seen, is viewed? What happens to the way we understand innovation itself? What happens to our understanding of how big or small or what government should do? Um, and I conclude with a, a nicely uh, titled chapter, The Economics of Hope, hoping that no one gets too depressed. So the first thing in, uh, that I tried to do is look at the, the way, especially starting with the mercantilists, the way this, this big change in how GDP is actually constructed when all of a sudden what matters is our focus on those items which actually have a price. And just to sort of skip some of the background, one of the most interesting um, aspects of this is that finance, the whole financial sector basically, most of it, wasn't even included in GDP up until the 1970s. It was actually seen as a transfer. It was indirectly seen as outside of the production boundary in the same way that we don't include social security payments inside uh, GDP because that's just seen as a transfer of existing uh, income from one population or from one part of the economy to another. In the same way, most of finance was not included. The only part that was included were, uh, for example, the fee that you might pay a mortgage provider was included because there was actually a price to it, um, but net interest payments, right? So the difference between what banks get in interest um, when you're paying them for a loan and what they give away in interest for your deposits, that wasn't included because that was just kind of seen as a transfer until this part of the economy started to become quite large. Um, and there's really interesting records back uh, uh, with the UN's um, uh, systems of national accounting where they started saying, you know, this is a bit awkward. This, you know, rising large part of the economy is not being accounted for. And because there was this need to actually put a price to it. Um, it was quite curious that they had to, in the national income and product accounting, think quite explicitly of well, what can we call it? What can we call what commercial banks are doing? Well, they're doing financial intermediation. And, that, and in the national income and product accounting, financial intermediation became uh, an important element. And then what investment banks were doing, the service they were providing to the economy was seen as risk-taking. Um, and, and that's quite interesting because, again, if you don't have a notion of some parts of the economy moving things around because anything that has a price must actually be valuable, then you also have this need to actually come up with a, uh, a, um, the name of what is actually the service, what is the product that is being provided if this one part of the economy is earning through the incomes that they were increasingly earning. Um, how do we, you know, what should we call that? Um, now, and this in fact, um, sorry, and, and the other obvious things, but most people know this, this is taught, I think, in most macroeconomics classes as when we look at the limits to GDP, you know, any area like care, home care, obviously, um, that people are providing for their children or wives for husbands or husbands for wives is not included. And there's been all sorts of very important feminist uh, writings about how we should actually include care into our GDP figures as well as when we're not caring, so when we're polluting the environment because that doesn't actually have a price, but we do have a price for cleaning up the environment. GDP grows actually when we pollute because we have to pay for it. Um, and equally, if you marry your uh, house cleaner, uh, GDP all of a sudden uh, goes down, perhaps because that person might still be doing the same job but simply without a price. But again, that I think is more understood and that's one of the things that we enjoy teaching when we teach macro to get students to think about the limits. But the bigger issue, 
I think, is the degree to which, and this isn't taught very much, the degree to which what we are including, not so much what's missing, in fact, is often confusing profits with rents, right? To what degree are some of the things being done actually just moving existing things around, but we've decided to include them almost in this idiosyncratic way because it wasn't actually tied to real understanding of value. So what finance actually should be doing in order to uh, create um, uh, a more productive society. Um, and this also, what's interesting is when finance did get included into GDP after the 1970s, this also coincides with the period of deregulation of finance as well as um, different parts of the financial sector, in fact, uh, having a strong effect on what industry is doing in terms of the need to uh, get short-term returns. But what, what I do in the book is also look at the degree to which when you're actually called a valuable part of the economy, and so finance being seen as important part of wealth creation, the way in which then the changes were made in terms of deregulation, but also the power of some of the large financial groups on uh, putting pressure on what industry was doing, how these two things are not independent of each other. And there's this wonderful concept in sociology and in philosophy of performativity, which means that how you judge the performance of something, think of universities, how we're constantly being evaluated for our research and our teaching, then actually affects what's being done um, in the economy. And that sort of feeds back into how we theorize and how we judge the performance, right? So the degree to which the way in which we almost misdiagnosed or got a bit lazy in thinking about what was productive, what was not, then affected the kind of confidence and the security of certain parts of the financial sector to also demand and lobby for uh, uh, things like deregulation or tax cuts. And I kind of look at the details of that interesting co-evolution and then what effect it actually had on the size. Um, I already showed you that graph before of financial intermediation relative to the rest of the economy, um, as well as the, kind, the incomes that were being generated within the financial sector. Um, and corporate governance itself, as I've already mentioned, this isn't just about financialization in terms of the size of finance, but the power of finance um, and what's driving it on the real economy, and the degree to which this as well was affected by a very narrow understanding of where value was coming from. So if you have a... Um, this idea that wealth creation is just happening in business, it becomes much easier to have a notion of uh, risk-taking and value creation just happening within um, organizations, uh, by, sorry, private organizations, and the degree to which other stakeholders, think of this concept of stakeholder capitalism, which you might have heard in the literature on varieties of capitalism, that stakeholder governance model, which we know is important in some Scandinavian countries where you have trade unions and government and uh, businesses at the table together negotiating, that becomes a much harder sort of model to um, think about also theoretically and then put into practice when the way we talk about value is so restricted just to what's produced within private business. Um, and this, these are just numbers here to scare you, I guess, a bit uh, in terms of the degree to which shareholder value as a particular way of using the value concept then affected uh, to a very, uh, at an increasing rate. In fact, this is getting, if you look at the numbers, they're getting worse. The degree to which profits being earned by different companies were no longer being reinvested back into production, the objective conditions of production that the classicals emphasized was key to value creation, but to um, 
financialized pur uh, purposes. So using profits just to buy back your shares, to boost stock options, to boost, surprise, surprise, executive pay. I link it in the book back to these kind of narrow understandings of value. And if anything, interestingly, the movement of value and the debate about value away from economics departments, where again, the word almost doesn't exist. It's just treated as the way that you know, production is done and growth happens to business schools where both the concept of shareholder value, value chains, shared value, uh, are in fact there. In fact, I've, I've never done this. I should have for the book. It would have been a nice compliment to look at you know, how in Google you can do word searches, just how much a word is used. And it would have been interesting to do it um, with economics journals and then business journals like Harvard Business Review. And I think there's a direct correlation of it leaving the economics departments and then going uh, to the business uh, journals. And um, and what's interesting here is even though coming back to the earlier point where I said actually there have been critiques, right? There's been many who've critiqued this short-termism in business um, and have asked for, you know, including Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, uh, who says that we need more social purpose in businesses. And he points specifically to these problems where, you know, over 100% of net income in many countries, sorry, companies, is being used for this combination of share buybacks and dividends. And he says, this is a problem. We need purpose uh, back. How it's very hard to just make those statements just based on kind of issues of fairness or what we think should be happening. It, it becomes essential, I think, again, to come back to debunking some of the myths about uh, a value that underpins these practices. And so if you look at, um, at uh, Michael Jensen's work, and he was one of the uh, business school theorists behind this, and Bill Lazonic has written quite a bit about this, about looking at exactly how this was being pitched as a way to run companies, it actually comes down to an idea of shareholders as the key creators of value because they're the biggest risk takers. They're the only ones, the theory says, that don't have a guaranteed rate of return. They are the residual claimants. So once everyone who does have a guaranteed rate of return, like workers have their wages, uh, banks will have their interest rate, if there's something left over, then they sort of deserve that, right? Because they took a huge risk of actually getting nothing. And only by kind of questioning those assumptions, I think, can we also change some of this behavior. So. This idea that, you know, for example, governments have a guaranteed rate of return or workers have a guaranteed rate of return is quite faulty. This does come back to the points I made in the entrepreneurial state where, uh, you know, the, the public investments that led to the Internet or GPS or touchscreen display, all these things in our iPhones, for every one of those successes, there, of course, were many failures. I often say for every Internet, there's many Concords. For every Tesla, which was government finance, there's many Cylindras. Um, and, and yet that myth that somehow it's just the shareholders that are really the biggest risk takers um, is, is the strength, if you want, behind uh, this practice, which says if you want risk taking, if you want innovation, we have to be rewarding uh, those who are actually taking those risks. Um, and this, of course, has led to an increasing percentage of cash flows returned to shareholders, but also linked to CEO to worker compensation ratios going out of the roof. In fact, you can also link this back just to the profit wage ratio, which is also at record levels. There's no profits problem today around the world. There's a real uh, investment problem. This, these profits are not being reinvested. Um, and you also see that here as business investment as a percentage of US GDP from mid-1940s onwards falling and relating this back to these problems of financialization of the real economy being, um, being uh, strengthened by these problematic notions of uh, value.
Um, then one of the areas that I think is the most uh, interesting is what's been happening to the pharmaceutical industry, where, yeah, you did say that all the speakers go over time. You're right. Um, I said that my alarm was going to go off when I was going over time. I didn't put the alarm. I just put the, the, the stop clock. But I'll take maybe five more minutes. Um, and so what's interesting with pharmaceuticals is that there's been all this talk about, you know, these uh, very high prices of drugs. So uh, even Bloomberg had um, some years ago this this uh, uh, cover saying, you know, this is crazy. Just from the size of the letters, you can see that they think it's crazy. So one pill a day for 12 weeks will cost you close to $100,000. And if you actually look at the costs, which certain um, researchers have also done for this particular drug, for example, Sovaldi, which was in the media quite a lot recently, is a drug for hepatitis C, the actual cost of this three-month treatment uh, uh, was sorry the, uh, for each pill it's one thousand uh, dollars. The actual cost was a fraction of that, right? So ironically, we're not using price. Uh, prices are not actually related to costs. What are they related to? This idea. Whoops, sorry. Of value-based pricing, which is all about perceived value. What is the value that uh, patients would put to a certain drug if they didn't have it? Um, this is quite interesting, by the way, because it used to be that the ways that we, um, that the pharmaceutical companies justified having very high prices was actually relating it back down to their costs. So they said that they had to recoup the costs of the R&D, the very high risk, high uncertain R&D. But when different uh, writings came about, including my own, but especially I would say Marsha Angel's great book called The Truth Behind the Drug Companies, revealed just how much other actors were paying into those costs, and there was sort of this debunking of the actual costs that the pharmaceutical companies were charging, <coughs> there was this need to sort of go to this uh, idea of value-based pricing, which is, again, value in the eye of, be of, of the beholder. How much do you actually value this drug? What, what is the value if you didn't have it? What would be the value to the health system if you didn't have it? Um, and this is quite interesting also because Goldman Sachs literally last week put out an article saying, you know, actually, you know, curing patients is kind of a bad business model anyway. Uh, so why don't we rethink the whole thing? Um, and of course, they're right. And the degree to which, by the way, this particular sector has been financialized, where the proxy for financialization is often share buybacks, is, is quite extraordinary. Um, and the amount of money being spent on buybacks compared to the budgets for the actual innovations. But you know, the problem with this particular way of thinking about value is, first of all, that it just comes down to what society can bear. Again, the market perception of the value, uh, the need for near-term and continual growth, so high prices to satisfy shareholders. Um, it, this, this concept fails to consider the collective nature of value creation. So the, in the U.S., the $30 billion a year that the public sector uh, pays into, the budgets for innovation in pharmaceuticals isn't taken into account. And of course, it masks significant value extraction and financialization, which I mentioned before. Um, more recently, again, lots of debates around the world around the Uber economy and the uh, degree to which the big tech giants are or are not creating the kind of value that they uh, say they create um, is interesting because this as well could really benefit from a, a wider understanding and a stronger debate, a contested debate 
because this is the issue when we don't talk about value, how easy it is right, to present yourself as a value creator. But platform capitalism, which is all about how the internet platform basically has been able to be used by particular types of companies and due to these very strong uh, network economies grow quite large very fast and also then through the dynamics of how data works to um, increase that uh, monopoly power rather than to um, have some sort of you know, diminishing returns where you are allowed to have a, a new uh, entrance come in and really pose a threat to their incumbency. And what's interesting, I think, is that you know, it's not unrelated to the... Um, you know, so there's two issues, basically. One is that the actual uh, technology that these companies are using, as we know, was not you know, created by themselves. They've been able to very smartly use it. The most obvious example is you know, the Facebooks and the Googles, where the Google algorithm was funded publicly. Uh, Facebook, of course, what would it be without the internet um, funded publicly? But it's, it's more how could we actually actively shape and create the digital uh, economy in such a way that actually uh, took into account this collective investment in the technology, but also the collective nature of the data. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is relating this back to universal basic income, which is being uh, supported by many of these companies, instead of seeing it as you know, a handout, could we actually, in fact, transform the way that technology is developing and the way that these companies are actually making money from advertising, which, again, was central to many of the debates in the last weeks, um, in ways that what actually happens is that it's not you know, we as citizens who are uh, paying for uh, uh, these technologies, but actually that for each click that you do, which is making billions, we know, to these companies, actually a share of that comes back to the citizens whose data this is. There's different people like Evgeny Morozov and others thinking about it, but what it actually requires is unpicking where the value is actually coming from, where the investments came from to uh, develop these uh, platforms, and how to share the benefits in such a way that realigns the risks and the rewards. Um, and of course, the whole issue of unproductive government, which I mentioned in the beginning, is quite extraordinary <coughs> that uh, in each and every one of these different theories in the history of economic thought, there has been sort of little challenge to, you know, well, what is government? Is it really just there to level the playing field, to invest in you know, police force, infrastructure, and education, but then all the real value is created uh, publicly? What's interesting is, again, this kind of performativity that the fact that in GDP we only see the government expenditures as spending and not actually producing anything. It's only uh, captured through the costs and not the value that's produced, the degree to which this has contributed to the myth that government is only facilitating the creation of value rather than being a lead player. And this, in turn, affects how we view government, how it behaves, how easily it can get uh, outsourced to different private producers. Um, again, sorry if I'm doing this very quickly, but the point here is that how we actually measure government inside that production boundary, the fact that we're just focusing on the costs because we don't actually value, because there's no price to most of the goods that we get from government that are free, that this then has affected the narratives um, about you know, who's productive, who's not, and the degree to which then this has an impact on whether it's privatization or outsourcing, which many people have critiqued, but not in such a way that has been linked to the ways that we actually value government in things like the national accounts. And this, by the way, is something that in the Institute um, for Innovation and Public Purpose that I direct at UCL, we're trying to do, 
which is to bring back even the word public value at the center. And even though economists haven't thought about this much, you know, you just go back to Aristotle, there's lots of thinking that's been happening in philosophy about where value uh, comes from, what, what public value is, what civic value is, what is social value. How do we capture that? And having a framework through which to think about how to create it, nurture, and evaluate it is something that we are very interested in, which also requires then literally you know, changing the way we talk about wealth creation, the way we talk about uh, productivity. So away from thinking that the public is just de-risking uh, towards actually actively taking risks instead of just fixing markets, co-creating and co-shaping markets. Instead of leveling the playing field, tilting it towards a direction. How can you in fact tilt finance? How can you reform finance? How can you restructure it precisely in order to get more long-termism? And that itself could be used to uh, bring you know, particular types of finance and its characteristics into the production boundary. Um, and so I, I, I finish with uh, the chapter in Economics of Hope, uh, saying that you know, uh, all you need to do is look at all the heterogeneity, the differences in how different organizations around the world work, private organizations, public organizations, civil sector organizations. They are driven by very different notions of not just values, but literally of the kind of value that they want to create. I've already mentioned shareholder value and stakeholder value. But this, this is important, right? Because there's no deterministic force, globalization or automation, which is forcing organizations to work how they are. There are choices to be made. And by seeing value as collectively produced and markets as an outcome of that, so different actors uh, organize themselves in particular ways, but also the interactions between different institutions uh, is key for forming the kind of market outcomes we get means that markets themselves can be shaped and co-created to produce particular types of value. Um, and steering activities in the, inside the production boundary rather than labeling makers versus takers, making versus taking means really restructuring those activities, so reforming finance, getting drug prices to reflect the actual division of labor between the different actors which generated the drugs, the ways to actually govern the knowledge creation process, for example, IPR, the patent system, in such a way that it really does nurture what Baumol, a famous economist, talked about as productive entrepreneurship, not unproductive entrepreneurship. And they, by that, he meant the increasing, uh, even beyond the years that he was writing, use of patents not to do what they should be doing, Patents came about because governments actually wanted to both incentivize innovation, but also, right, because if, if, if everyone can copy you right away, why innovate? But also by writing down what's in the patent, you um, made it easier for diffusion and full deployment of innovation to happen once that patent was up. But we have increasingly not paid attention to this. We've increasingly allowed patents to uh, destroy value, one might say, by allowing them to go increasingly upstream in the innovation process. So the actual tools, the hammer, is being patented, uh, which ironically is bringing us back to the world of secrecy of the Middle Ages. This itself, that whole issue of IPR, so intellectual property rights, reforming that in order to produce productive entrepreneurship could be linked to a, a, a more um, dynamic conversation about value aligning risks and rewards, steering the direction of growth. So instead of having this concept of you know, policies just leveling the playing field, tilting it in directions actually solve really important societal problems could also be um, 
linked to theories of value. Uh, this report, which I've just written for the European Commission, tries in a, in a more policy-oriented way to talk about some of this stuff, which is, you know, what could we learn from the man on moon experience? Wasn't it interesting? We got a man on the moon and back again safely in a generation, and that actually happened by focusing the way that investment was occurring in public and private um, sectors around problems that were addressing a challenge. What might that look like if we applied that today to say the sustainable development goals, which everyone talks about, but then you know, not much is happening. Um, could we, for example, begin with some of the big challenges in those SDGs and then bring it down to particular targets like a plastic-free ocean, get lots of different investments across sectors, lots of bottom-up experimentation um, at the level of the projects. This is sort of bringing us away from the whole notion of value, but not really, because the way that then you would steer the economy is about thinking about how can you actually structure investments in such a way that solve that problem, but also that pick the willing, not the winners, that are willing to actually increase uh, the degree to which their profits are you know, finding their ways back into the economy, but around particular problems rather than asking for you know, different types of handouts from governments. What my point in this work was also that it would be very hard to have this kind of mission-oriented approach with a kind of public policy that is currently being driven by a type of way of talking about value creation, where anything like this, which is really tilting the playing field, actually getting you know, our, our, our different actors in the economy to solve particular problems, as opposed to letting the market decide, it becomes very hard to think in this mission-oriented kind of moonshot way with the particular way that we think about value as created solely in business and the policy-making process is simply facilitating that. So I just end with this because it's sort of a, a way in which uh, we can, in a, in, in a very uh, practical way, start getting our hands dirty on what it would look like to restructure relationship, restructure the conditions through which different actors also access different types of collectively created resources in different ways to share, not just the risks but also the rewards. But unless it comes back to understandings of productive, unproductive wealth creators versus just wealth distributors, unless we really debunk those hard-held uh, assumptions, it becomes very hard to tackle the great challenges we have ahead. Great. That's it. Thank you. So we now have some, uh, some time for Q&A. So the way it's going to work, we're going to collect a couple of questions. Um, to give as many people a chance to ask a question, try to limit yourself to one comment or one question, and wait until you get the microphone from one of the stewards. Thanks very much for the talk and for several of your books. They're really inspiring. Um, I know you've talked about it previously, but perhaps you didn't talk about it as much this talk, but notions of the li well, the limits to growth, green growth, the environment. I mean, there's that nice David Ricardo quote about the use of the original and indestructible powers of the soil, but we've quickly learned it's not indestructible. I've never seen a good argument, actually, that green growth is possible. I think they're often specious. Do you think there is a good argument for it? Do you think we can achieve absolute decoupling in time? If so, how? If not, how do we politically frame something like degrowth? Yes. Um, you had four eras of economic categories of um, economic development um, 
which stopped short of, quote, today. Um, do you have a term or um, some kind of snappy characterization um, that would get to the content of what era, if any, we're in today? Thank you. Um, I was just about um, old enough to have actually done national income accounting when people still did national income accounting. Maybe they do it again, but they certainly haven't done it for years. Um, I was struck by your very first graph of the um, inter financial intermediation versus gross value added in general. Um, because you also said that um, financial, the financial sector really only entered the GD, entered in the national accounts in a different way from the 1970s onwards. And the divergence of your graph approximately from what I saw seems to date from that time. Now I presume that to some extent one writes these things back against um, new definitions, mm -hmm. but what would GDP have looked like in the absence of this growth of uh, financial intermediation? And is it, however, not legitimate to talk about new productive or different productive activities in exactly the same way as, you know, a hundred years ago if you looked at what people's occupations were in the census relative to what people's occupations are today. Things disappear and things come in which were relevant once upon a time and are not relevant today. Look at the cotton trades, for example, um, and then look at the occupations in financial services, which a you know, hundred years ago were not in the census. So could you comment upon this disjunction? Right, okay. So um, thank you. So the first one on limits to growth. Um, it's not my expertise, but I have strong opinions about it. <laughs> um, and I was just talking about it actually with Branko Milanovic, who also won the uh, um, the Antif Award with me. We were at Tufts last weekend getting it. Um, I think there's, a, there's, I would agree with you actually that there isn't enough theorizing about this. And one of the things that I focused on is this whole kind of demand side part of the economy that is absolutely central uh, to both in the past, having gotten us some of the big revolutionary changes, but definitely in terms of the green economy, this isn't just about renewable you know, energy. This is about how do you restructure demand in such a way that it sort of buys in and restructures behavior so you really do get the full deployment and the full diffusion that uh, green technologies actually could be providing us. It's not enough to have just the technological change. And there one of the lessons is, I would say, you know, the mass production system, uh, which itself would not have had the effect it did. And we know it had a huge effect in terms of productivity across many different sectors across also production, distribution, and consumption. In the work of Carlota Perez, who's um, I'm a big admirer of her work, she's a historian, but also um, she's basically a theorist of the changes in uh, economic history. She looks at the role that suburbanization played, for example, in the ability of mass production to have the effect it did. And she argues that green today, if it actually could be seen as green growth and not just green technology, could actually play that same role for the ICT revolution. So instead of having the usual joke where you have the internet here and the indoor toilet there, and then people asking you, which one would you sort of take away from your home? Would you rather go pee outside and, and still have the internet or vice versa? That, so this is um, you know, Robert Gordon and, and Solo who have made that kind of joke when looking at the lack of uh, ability of the ICT revolution still to really transform productivity across the economy, instead of seeing it in that dichotomous way, one could ask, have we actually had today 
um, for ICT, for the power of computing, the kind of demand-side policies that we had for mass production. And so if we look at it like that, instead of seeing trade-offs between you know, technological change and sustainability, we could think of massive change, but demand-side kind of revolutions, just as important as the supply side, to produce kind of green growth, as well as the reinvestment issue and the shareholder value problems which have led to financialization as also becoming quite central, right? So when you don't have profits being reinvested uh, back into the economy, but just being allowed to, um, you know, make quick bucks uh, traded, one could actually argue maybe that's cleaner, because if you're not reinvesting it back in the economy, you're not producing dirty things. But of course, you could be reinvesting precisely into these green growth areas. But when you don't have, on the one hand, a public entity which has the ambitions of going to the moon and back again in a generation, but around green problems, as well as you know, financial sector, which makes lots of money just by being short-termist, and a business sector, which is also you know, worried more about quarterly returns, I would argue it'd be almost impossible to get green growth. Um, by the way, the same thing with, I mean, no, no one's asked it yet, but I would argue the same thing with robots and jobs. Right, everyone's worried about that today. It's not just green growth, it's what's gonna to happen to jobs with all this technology. There as well, what's quite interesting when you go back to David Ricardo's work back in the 1800s, he already had a chapter in Principles of Political Economy called Chapter 31 on Machinery, where he asked the questions that are being asked today. You know, Do we have a problem that all this mechanization, which he was witnessing at the time that the labor theory of value was coming about, that the mechanization takes over all these jobs? And he was saying, yeah, it is. It's labor displacing. But then what you had for 200 years, which uh, basically just stopped, was a reinvestment of those profits made from Machine A, into another part of the economy. So new jobs were then being uh, generated somewhere else. When that stops, because of this investment crisis that I talked about, when you don't have that reinvestment and you have this financialization, that, I would argue, it poses a bigger threat to jobs and to skills, which are endogenous functions of investment, than the automation in and of itself, which, again, has been you know steadily uh, rising under capitalism. Um, the issue about... Um, uh, the era, which era, where are you? Sorry. The era, I can't, I, there, there you are. Uh, are we talking about, I guess, sorry if I confused it, there was an era of historians of economic thought where I absolutely did jump from, you know, the mercantilists to the physiocrats to the classical economists to neoclassical economics. That was more about the theorizing about the economy. What I think you're talking about is more the economy itself, what's actually going on in the economy. We are no longer in an agricultural society. We're no longer at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We are in what one might call you know, the new economy, the knowledge economy, an economy where intangible capital is even more important. You know, so knowledge and copyrights and patents are just as important as sort of the physical capital. And that's why one of my last slides was talking about platform slash digital capitalism, that this is, in fact, so interesting that when we don't have some of the concept both about value being created collectively, so stakeholder-created value, right, workers and government organizations and different types of private organizations co-create value, um, and then on top of that, when we don't have a framework for the policymaking process, which is about co-creating and co-shaping markets so we get particular type of market outcomes, but it's just focused on fixing markets, 
then it becomes really hard to transform the digital economy and digital capitalism and platform capitalism in a way that actually achieves the kind of objectives that are being talked about. So whether we actually want people's privacy to be protected, whether we want the power of digital and the modern ICT technologies to also be helping us achieve a greener, a healthier, more inclusive society becomes very hard when the theory of value itself is, is so limited. And that's what I focused on. With the NEPA accounting, um, so very good question. Um, the, it, it has been, it was you, right? Just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, it, uh, what I think is unarguable is that the size of finance absolutely has grown. I mean, banks, people forget, banks actually used to be called by names that reflected what they were doing, right? Chemical bank was financing the chemical industry. <laughs> um, when finance starts financing finance, right? This is Andy Haldane. By, by the way, I should have written it there. That was Andy Haldane's graph from the Bank of England. Um, and this is one of his big critiques, not just about the short-termism of finance, but what finance is doing that absolutely expanded its size. I mean, if you're financing the real economy, then you might get the chemical industry, the pharmaceutical industry to you know, grow, which itself isn't necessarily good. This is one of my points too. You don't finance a sector. You finance perhaps <coughs> problems through which you get these sectors to interact to solve big health challenges, energy challenges. But coming back to the relative size of total gross value added versus just that part of financial intermediation as a percentage of it, what that graph showed, this point about performativity, <laughs> this uh, funky word that I didn't even know existed, which apparently is common parlance in both sociology and philosophy, which is this link between how you value stuff and finance all of a sudden being seen as valuable, linking that back to how finance behaves, as well as literally the confidence, right, of then being able to go lobby uh, governments that before would have just looked at the financiers as, oh, come on, get, you know, sorry, next, to, oh, wow, you know, these are important wealth creators. That affected the size. Um, and that's what I think has really not been understood very much. So the co-evolution between deregulation, uh, what the, the, the influence of finance on how actual industries are operating in terms of short-term returns needing to be uh, met, and, um, and what finance is actually doing in terms of you know, directing growth in the economy, or what Minsky called money manager capitalism. Um, so that's what I was trying to allude to. Hi, um, I just wondered... Hi, I just wondered um, if microbanking figured in your in micro microbanking, how that figures in your overall thoughts of exchanging change of where uh, support is available and changing things. Uh, very quickly, what advice would you give to those lobbying the UK government to mainstream and maximise the role of social enterprises and social investors, given the clear overlap with your vision and mission? Right. Uh, yeah, great to see this book uh, has come together, Mariana. And um, I just have a question relating to evidence. Um, as we know from recent history, it's always very useful to have some really existing alternatives in order to advocate for them. And I was wondering, do you have some examples where the economics of hope is actually being practiced? Some good examples of where, you know, it's a, a positive sign and we can refer to that if we want to make this argument? <laughs> right. So the first and the second were actually quite related because micro-banking is often uh, 
associated with social enterprise um, um, policies. Um, and I think, it's not that I'm skeptical, but I think it, it becomes too easy to look at the form of the finance. So somehow we might think a big bank, sorry, where was the microbanking person? There you go, I have a thing, I have to look at the person when I'm answering the question. Um, uh, in the same way, I would almost say, in the same way that Smith, I think, was faulty when he said, you know, if you are, you know, a laborer, you're productive. If you are, you know, a merchant, you're not. Same thing. If you're a big bank, you're somehow problematic. If you're a small, cute bank, you're great. Mm? Uh, you know, similarly with companies, SMEs. Mm? <laughs> you know, most SMEs are not very productive. They're not very innovative. They often treat their workers pretty badly. Uh, there's not trade unions in them. Similarly, some big companies like Unilever have been doing pretty extraordinary things. Other big companies, extremely problematic. Same thing with the banks. We have some very large state banks, for example, the Chinese Development Bank, the German Development Bank, I'm talking about the public banking system, the European Investment Bank, which have been absolutely central for this issue that I raised before, the diffusion and full deployment across the world of the power of green technology. And the degree to which microbanking and even crowd financing, which of course is becoming also very interesting, have currently, as they're structured, the power to really create these transformational shifts is questionable. And if we didn't need transformation, it wouldn't matter. We could just kind of think, oh, isn't that an interesting case of, uh, of you know, a, a new model of banking? But given the massive problems we have around this investment crisis, um, and where countries like the UK, for example, continue to grow through consumption-led growth, not investment-led growth, so the rate of private debt to disposable income is back at record levels, and that, by the way, caused the crisis. Um, the degree to which we, we can really have this transformation, for example, in not just investment-led growth, but a particular type of investment-led green growth, so far at least, I would argue, you know, I don't see uh, micro-banking uh, as being, or crowdfinancing as being kind of the solution. However, in the kind of, I don't know if you know the work of Roberto Unger, he's this wonderful... Um, thinker at Harvard. He's also a lawyer. He was also, interestingly, uh, Lula's chief scientific advisor, in, um, or chief economic advisor, I think just chief whatever thinker um, in Brazil. He talks about those examples as interesting, not necessarily as what they're doing, because of what I've just said, they're actually not having much of an effect, but in symbolically, <laughs> the structures that they represent, if you could systematize them. So microbanking, of course, issues trust, right? You actually... Um, use trust in a community as opposed to equity and assets, physical assets, in order to make out loans. And if you can really you know, transform how we build trusting communities and really use the concept of trust at the center of an economy and then systematize that up, what kind of transformation that could produce in terms of you know, social value. So that would sort of be my answer. Social investment, I mean, one of the issue is you know, all these social impact, where are you, sorry, the guy who asked it. There you are. No. There you are. Sorry. You, you need to make bigger, how do you say, wavings. Um, so one of the things I do in the book is I tackle also these different types of partnerships that we have out there, right? So whether it's public-private partnerships, PFI schemes, social impact bonds, and how they're currently working. This whole issue of directionality is, is often missing, that we assume that simply doing something, uh, perhaps not for profit or for a community, or um, particular types of actors coming together through 
particular partnerships. It just sounds good. The word partnership sounds good, doesn't it? It just sounds good. We're going to partner. Or the word ecosystem sounds good without paying attention to how these partnerships are structured and how that itself starts to affect the direction through which things happen, whether it's an educational program, whether it's a, a health program. So it's not to say that I, I'm not interested in the social investment movement, but what I think could really complement it is to rethink how to build, because obviously social investment by itself won't necessarily, again, produce these transformational shifts, how to really rethink uh, partnerships by different civic organizations, voluntary organizations, third sector, private sector, public sector, in such a way that both the contracts between the organizations are kind of rethought in terms of literally the mechanism design we can use, uh, but also this issue of directionality, right? So if you begin with the notion, we want this kind of healthcare system that has these kinds of characteristics, you know, universal, uh, high quality, you know, accessible to anyone, then how do you then structure the kind of division of labor between the different actors that gets you that kind of health system versus what we're doing today is we just start getting these different actors together and almost help for the best, thinking that, again, the direction will be set by either the market or the uh, you know, incentives that are driving each individual organization. And that's why I look at the missions. The mission approach is very interesting, and it could be useful for thinking about health because the, the military, we don't like to think of the military as a good thing, but the good thing about the military is it's, it's not naive, right? You know, they want something. They want to build a bomb or a tank or whatever it is because they want to go to war, which is a security concern. Health, of course, is full of security concerns, as is the environment, but the military thinks of it that way. They then use procurement policy, right, to procure in what they need. They allow what, you know, how what is procured uh, to, to be quite um, uh, open, right, again, bottom-up, but they have very strict criteria. We need it for this, we need it to be produced within this amount of time, and we also, as we're financing it, kind of want it for free once you produce it because we paid you for it, and then you can also sell it privately, but the government gets it for free because they procured it. Um, and, and that kind of both setting a direction, you know, you want a solution to a particular epidemic or particular energy problem, but then getting the right instruments in place to allow that bottom-up experimentation, but not to be foolish on the accessibility, right? If it's publicly financed, it should be publicly accessible. There's all sorts of interesting lessons, I think, to learn there that go beyond the way we kind of hype up sometimes these social um, impact uh, criteria. The economics of hope, Gregor, who was essential in... Uh, helping me uh, think about the book. Um, so what I find interesting is not any one economy that is doing everything right, but if you look at how uh, particular organizations work and what's driving both what they do and how they interact with other organizations in the economy, and this is, again, what the Institute's trying to do is to really kind of foster a, a platform uh, to share those lessons and then to theorize about them. So... You know, when, for example, I've already mentioned the word public bank, I think, a couple times. What I found interesting in Brazil some years ago is that when uh, Lula talked about the need for growth to be not just innovative, but also inclusive, that set, for example, a whole uh, string of things. Sorry, it's, um, uh, sorry. It led to uh, different initiatives which were quite transformative. So, you know, the use of a public bank, for example, to simply help a sector, right? So at the time, there was the generics industry, which was being all bought up by foreign multinationals. And the generics said, we, you know, can you come help us so that we retain Brazilian status? 
the bank under this kind of concept of inclusive growth, as well as using the power of modern-day technology, was quite confident. And they said, uh, but you're currently producing these generic pills five a day, right? And if we're going to, as a public actor, help you create value and protect your status as a, as a Brazilian company and not bought by multinational, you should produce one pill a day. How, you know, because people on favelas are not going to remember to take five pills a day, as probably none of us would. Um, and so this idea that you can both provide, um, and we've been looking a lot at this actually with you, um, you know, in, in terms of green financing, the conditions that are attached to the way that different public and private actors work together, I think is the big question, right? So instead of going back to the old debates of should we privatize, should we nationalize, um, you know, is this about uh, just fostering bottom up or top down? How you can engage in serious, healthy uh, uh, discussions about the conditions attached to particular types of public investments, right? So if you have a publicly financed transport sector that someone like Richard Branson wants a piece of it, it should be very actively negotiated that this collectively created uh, good infrastructure is then both maintained, is nurtured, is modernized through those private investments if the private sector wants a piece of the pie versus what we currently have, which is this kind of blanket, sure, here, we'll sell off this piece. Um, I often give the example of uh, Fiat, which is interesting because Fiat in Italy is a car company which is quite inertial and it has been part of what I would call a parasitic public-private partnership in Italy full of you know, handouts versus uh, these kind of conditions. And when Fiat went to, it, uh, to the U.S. Um, to buy Chrysler, which was in public hands because it had been bailed out uh, like the banks had been, um, Obama said, here's Chrysler, but the condition is that you in this country invest in hybrid engines. And Fiat did. They were like, all right, no problem, we'll do that. And so this, you know, and, and that sounds easy. Okay, we can just demand different things. But the confidence, and that was a rare moment of confidence, I should say, <laughs> that Obama had, uh, that, that confidence to demand that actually there's a deal, a healthy deal, a symbiotic deal between public and private is one of the ways, I think, that brings hope because we won't get a green economy. We won't get a healthier society if we don't go back to this basic point that value is created collectively. We have to structure internal values and in how organizations are run, but also the interactions between them to actively co-create and co-shape the type of markets we want. That these examples, no? if you can, again, in the Roberta Unger kind of way, systematize them up and ask what would it look like if we actually thought of the economy in that way, would be transformative. I think we should leave it here because we're getting close to our 8 o'clock limits. Uh, I'd like to remind you is that you can buy the book outside, and if you want to get it signed, then you can come back and then up line the stairs. up. And bring a pen because I don't have one. I have a pencil. Okay. <laughs> and then f finally, please join me in uh, thanking our speaker.